Take a Bible this morning. You can also grab your bulletin. There's an outline if you like to follow along. We're jumping into a new sermon series this morning called Christmas with Isaiah. So for the next several weeks, you're going to need your Bible and you're going to need to make your way to the book of Isaiah. This morning we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 7. Some of you may be aware of what I'm about to bring up. Some of you maybe have not heard this. It's a little bit of inside baseball, I guess, among preachers or Christian culture. But there was a little bit of controversy lately about the role and the place of the Old Testament. Do we need it? Is it valuable? And the controversy got kicked off, and it's still sort of a a simmering, ongoing issue. When one of the pastors of one of the largest churches in the United States, in a message, said... Christians need to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. We need to be done with it. We need to move away from it. We don't need it. It's not valuable for us. It's old news. Uh, This was not a crazy church. This is not a church that many people would think of as just sort of off there in theological left field. But the pastor said we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Personally, especially as we come to Christmas... I'm not sure it's possible for me to disagree more with a theological statement than that one. I'm not embarrassed by the Old Testament. I hope that you're not. I don't feel like we need to apologize for the Old Testament. I hope that you're not looking to do that. And I certainly don't want to unhitch three-fourths of the Bible in forfeiting ground to, to some, in some attempt. This pastor sort of thinks that we can win people better to Jesus. We can, we can attract more people to church if we do this. I don't want anything to do with that. In fact, at Emmanuel, this Christmas season, we're going to jump squarely into the Old Testament. We've been in the Old Testament. We've been looking at the minor prophets, and we're just going to stay in the Old Testament. And we're going to talk about the major prophet of Isaiah. Some people say, some Bible scholars say that Isaiah is the greatest piece of literature and all the Old Testament. Some of you may say, oh, I would have thought that would be the book of Psalms and the poetry and the beauty of that. But many, many scholars, biblical scholars, Hebrew scholars, they read the book of Isaiah and they say, this is the greatest piece of writing. It includes every theme that you find in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And if you read the book of Isaiah carefully and then you go to the New Testament and you read the New Testament carefully, Over and over and over again, you're going to say the biblical authors are very much hitched to Isaiah. They keep bringing up words and phrases and ideas and promises and prophecies over and over and over again. And so over the next several weeks, this is what we're going to look at in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7, 9, 42, 49, 50, and then 52 and 53. Different prophecies from the book of Isaiah all pointing us forward to Jesus, each one telling us and preparing us for something unique about who Jesus is, why he was born, and what he came to accomplish. And so our passage this morning is Isaiah 7. Before we jump into the text, let's just sort of lay a little bit of history out. We tried to do this with the minor prophets, and I think it's helpful when you jump into the book of Isaiah as well. Isaiah was a prophet during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those were the kings of Judah when Isaiah was a prophet. The events of Isaiah 7 took place during the reign of Ahaz, who was a wicked king of Judah. So you see the other three names, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah. All of those guys were good kings. 
None of them was a perfect king, but they were all kings who loved the Lord and tried to lead Judah to worship the Lord only. Ahaz was different. You can go back and read the accounts of who Ahaz was and what he was like. Let me just summarize it for you. Ahaz, when he became king, put up statues made of metal to Baal all over Jerusalem. Made statues of Baal, had his artists make them, and put them up all over the city of Jerusalem. He used to go out to all the high places. The Bible in the Old Testament talks about the high places. Literally, hills, mountaintops, where the pagans would go out and worship pagan gods. When the Bible says that he used to go out to these high places, it doesn't mean he liked hiking. It doesn't mean he was an adventurer. It means he was going out to join in pagan worship with all of these pagan peoples. The Bible even says about Ahaz that he took his son, one of his children, and offered him as a human sacrifice in the valley of Hanam, thinking that he could appease some other deity by offering his own child is a sacrifice. So this is Isaiah's ministry. You got Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah, good kings. But our passage, Isaiah 7, takes place during the days of Ahaz, and he was a really, really bad dude. During his reign, during the reign of Ahaz, Judah was attacked by Israel in the north and the nation of Syria. These two nations, sort of small unimportant kingdoms on the grand scale of things, just like Judah, came together, Israel and Syria, and they came to attack Judah. You can go back and read it. I've given you the scriptures. Just look at Isaiah 7, verse 6. This sums it up nicely. Isaiah 7, 6. This is the conversation between the king of Israel and the king of Syria. Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel, as the king in the midst of it. We're going to work together. We're going to attack Judah. We're going to get rid of Ahaz, and we're going to put our own guy on the throne. We have our hand-picked puppet king that we're going to put on the throne, and he will do whatever we want him to do. That was their plan. And this is interesting. Other kings of Judah were attacked Ahaz was not the only king to have someone march against him. In fact, other kings of Judah were attacked by much larger armies. All things considered, the threat from Israel and Syria was not a very big threat. You may think that like some of the other kings, that Ahaz would say, we need God's help, we need the Lord's help, we need Yahweh's help. Instead, he was literally terrified. Remember it says right here in verse 6, we want to go up and terrify them. We want to scare them. Well, look what we read in Isaiah 7, 2. When the house of David, that's Ahaz, he's from the house of David. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified. They were so godless. They had wandered so far from the Lord that it never even crossed their mind to ask the Lord for help. They were simply terrified. Shaking, Isaiah says, like trees being shaken by the wind. This is where it gets really interesting because the Lord comes, Yahweh comes. Remember, they didn't ask him for help. But he comes to Ahaz and he says, I want to help you. It's sort of a curveball if you know anything about Ahaz. You think, why wouldn't the Lord just want to 
punish him or destroy him or get rid of him or surely the son of Tobiel would be a better king than Ahaz. Why not just move on and try over? But the Lord said to Ahaz, I'm going to be with you. And he makes this promise. He says, I'm going to be with Judah and I'm going to protect Judah. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to, I'm going to preserve you. Look at Isaiah 7 verse 4. This is what the prophet was supposed to say to the king. Isaiah to Ahaz. Isaiah 7 4. Say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Remaliah. Don't be afraid, just be quiet. I'm going to be with you through this. Those words are almost verbatim what Jesus said to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee when they thought the storm was going to take them over and they were frightened out of their mind. And Jesus says, be still. Just be quiet. And everything was still and everything was quiet. God sends the exact same message to this pagan godless king on the throne of David. And he says to him, just be quiet. Don't be afraid. Just be still. All he wanted Ahaz to do was trust him. I'm not asking you to go fight. I'm not asking you to train up an army. I just want you to be still and don't be afraid. That's all he had to do. And what the Bible says he did instead was he went to the bank. He took all of his money out of the bank. He called the king not of Syria but of Assyria. And he said, I will give you all of my money if you will come protect me. The Lord had just said, don't be afraid. Don't do anything. Just be still and be quiet. And he takes matters into his own hands and he says to this other pagan king, I need your protection. I need your help. These two nations are going to conquer me. And instead of going to the Lord, he goes to Assyria. All of that leads us to the big idea. And then we're going to read the passage. The big idea of our passage is this. We should be people of faith because God has promised to be with his people. We should be people of faith because God has promised to be with us. Our part of the story picks up in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10. The Word of God says this, Isaiah seven ten. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. And let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. And I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold... The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people And upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. 
want you to think for a moment about asking from God to see a sign. There's stories in the Bible that talk about you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't ask God to give you a sign. There's a famous story in the book of Judges about a man who did this. He asked God for a sign, and then he asked twice for a sign. And when you read the story, it's clear from the literature this was not a good idea on his part. But my guess is, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want to embarrass you or me. My guess is there have been times in your life where you wanted God to give you a sign. You just wanted God to make something clear. Something maybe you had a a good idea about or a hunch of or, or maybe even biblical warrant to believe, but you just weren't certain. You weren't sure. And maybe in your mind you thought, God, if you would just give me a sign, then I could know. If you could just do something so that I would not have any doubts or any questions. Maybe it was a a circumstance you were in, a situation you were in, a crisis you were facing. Maybe it was a decision that you had to make. But at some point in your life, you've probably wrestled with this idea. God, I just need you to give me a sign. Maybe you weren't even looking for a sign. Maybe something just happened, some sort of coincidence, that you then looked at and said, I wonder if that's a sign. I wonder if God's trying to tell me something. It was almost too much of a coincidence to be just a coincidence. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know these two faces? Oh, man. Guy on the left is Alex Smith. He used to play quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Guy on the right is Joe Theismann. He used to play quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Corey and Hunter wanted me to show you the videos of these guys. I'm not going to do that. You can YouTube it if you want to see all the gory details. Here's what happened. 33 years ago, November 18, 1985, Joe Theismann was playing quarterback for the Washington Redskins. They were playing the New York Giants. Everybody boo and hiss. Boo. Redskins and the Giants. The worst. It's the toilet bowl. Redskins and Giants playing each other. And Lawrence Taylor makes a move through the line, and he sacks Joe Theismann, and he gets him just right with his leg, and he snaps it. His tibia, right down here in his fibula, just snapped it right in half. In the video of it was gruesome. How many of you remember watching the game on TV? Yeah. I was three, so I don't remember, but I've seen the replay. It was gross. November 18th, 1985. Do you know what last Sunday was? was November 18th. You know who was playing football? The Redskins. Alex Smith was in. 33 years to the day. Guess who was at the game? Joe Theismann. Guess what happened in the third quarter? He got sacked. He got rolled up awkwardly. And his leg broke almost in an identical play. Now that's weird, right? 33 years to the day. Same team. Same position, same injury, same play, all of that the same. You know what else is weird? The final score of both games was exactly the same. The 85 game and the 2018 game. 23-21, both games. You look at that and you think, is God trying to tell you something? Maybe your football career should be done. Maybe you should take a hint and just walk away. Some of you just chuckle and you say, oh, it's just a coincidence. It's interesting. 
I would agree with you, it's just a strange coincidence, one of those things that happens in history. But you know as well as I do, a lot of people look at that kind of stuff and say, eh, that's not just a coincidence. That's God trying to say something to you. And some of you wish that at some point in your life, God would make something that plain. God, make it plain. What decision should I make? Can I really trust you to come through in this situation? Is it really going to go down the way I think it's going to go down? God, I need you to give me some kind of a sign. And the amazing part of this story is that something amazing was about to happen. And the Lord, Yahweh, sent his prophet to Ahaz, a godless, wicked king. And the prophet said, ask of the Lord a sign. Anything you want. Look at Isaiah 7.10. The Lord spoke to Ahaz. That, that in and of itself is amazing. That the Lord is speaking to this man. This man doesn't deserve to hear from the Lord. He's not seeking the Lord. He's not trying to honor the Lord, but the Lord is going to speak to him. And here's the message. Ask a sign. Look, I don't care how many Bible verses you can quote. If God tells you to do something, you should do it. And God says, ask a sign. It can be as high as heaven. It can be as deep as Sheol. Meaning, it can be anything you want it to be. Do you want me to make those two nations just disappear? Say the word. I'll make them disappear. What sign do you want? Do you want me to do some sort of miracle? Like make something float? or What do you want? Do you want the Cowboys to make the playoffs? You pick. Make it as impossible, as far-fetched as you can imagine. Like, pick the craziest thing you can dream of. Whatever you want. As, as low as Sheol, as high as heaven. Pick whatever you want, any kind of sign. Isaiah seven twelve. Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. I'm not sure I can capture in words just how offensive that response was to the Lord. He couched it in spiritual terms. I mean, he, he pulled some sort of biblical idea from, from the Old Testament. He said, oh, you're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to put him to the test. Trust me, it was not his piety that stopped him from asking God for a sign. He just simply refuses to have anything to do with Yahweh. He's hitched his wagon to Baal. He's hitched his wagon to the gods who ask you to sacrifice your children in the valley of Hanam. He doesn't want anything to do with Yahweh. He doesn't want anything to do with the Lord. And so he gets this opportunity. The Lord extends an olive branch to this pagan king. This king who has never sought to honor the Lord. Who has always sought to demote the Lord. And the Lord extends this olive branch and says, All you have to do is ask for a sign. To know that I'm going to be with you through this. And he's completely uninterested. You know, there's something worse than anger and rage, and it's just disinterest. It's just apathy. I have a pastor friend in town who's from England, and we talk about this. And he talks about his home country, and he says, you know, the bad thing there is, it's not that they get so mad about what you say, they just don't care. They don't care. Say what you want to say. I don't care. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. Totally disinterested. That's Ahaz. I don't know about you, but I read that and I just find myself wondering. 
Go back to earlier in chapter 7. It says that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like trees in the forest shake before the wind. They were terrified. Their knees were literally knocking together. And it makes me wonder, why didn't he just pick a sign? Why didn't he just say something? Why didn't he just say, okay, great. We can't save ourselves. I was going to pay this other guy to come, but you're going to help Fantastic. We could use the bailout. Why didn't he just take the sign or ask for a sign? I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think Ahaz understood that God wasn't going to spare him from attack. The attack was going to happen. These two nations were going to march on Jerusalem. That was unavoidable. What God was promising to do was not save them from the disaster, but to preserve them through the disaster. And there's a little bitty clue. It's really easy to miss. We didn't read the beginning of chapter 7, but look at Isaiah 7. Look at verse 3. There's a little clue here for Ahaz. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son. Shear Jeshub. My Bible has a little footnote, and if you go down to the bottom, it says Shear Jeshub means a remnant will return. It was not a coincidence that God wanted Isaiah to take his son out to the meeting. And the presence of the prophet's son was a reminder to the king, this attack is going to happen. You are going to come under siege, but what God is going to do is be with you through it, and he's going to preserve a remnant. And I think Ahaz heard the promise and the hope, and he said, a remnant? I'm not interested in the Lord's help if all he can save is a remnant. I don't want it. I'm not going to put him to the test. I'm not even going to bother with a sign. If that's the best that you can do for your people, we'll pass. And we'll throw our lot in with the king of Assyria. We'll give him all the money we have in the bank and see if he'll save us. I think even on a deeper level, Ahaz understood, if I accept help from the Lord, I'm going to owe him. If I pay the king of Assyria, we're on the up and up. We're even. He got the money, I got deliverance. We, We both walk away clean. But if the Lord swoops in and saves us, then I'm going to owe him my allegiance, my devotion, my obedience. He wasn't interested in that. And so he does exactly what Satan does with Jesus in the wilderness. He takes a verse of the Bible and he twists it and he uses it as an excuse to disobey the Lord. And he says, I'm not going to ask And I'm not going to put God to the test. And this is where it gets interesting because God pops back and he says, look, you're wearying men. You're calling on the king of Assyria. Can't you weary me? You're asking him, why don't you ask me? And then God, like a a good mom or a good dad, steps in and he says, I'm going to give you a sign whether you want one or not. I gave you the chance. You could ask for anything in the world. Any sign you want. And you're so disinterested, I'm going to give you one anyways. And this is what it says. Look at Isaiah 7, 14, 15, and 16. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In the you, it's hard to see it in the English, but the you there is not a singular you, it's a plural you. This is not just for Ahaz. Ahaz didn't want it. God's going to give it anyways, and it's not just for him, it's for all the people. The Lord himself will give you a sign. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He'll eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. There's a couple of interesting things to note there before we jump into to what the prophecy means and how it was fulfilled. The word that Isaiah used that he spoke on the Lord's behalf in verse 14, where he says, the virgin shall conceive, is the Hebrew word Alma. A-L-M-A, roughly in English, Alma. It's a word that actually has a couple of meanings. You find it used in different contexts. Sometimes the word means a young woman. Sometimes the word means a virgin. And you understand the difference. You say, how do I know what the word means? And it depends on the context. I'll just give you one example. Bark. How many of you are thinking about a dog right now? How many of you are thinking about a tree? Well, how do you know? Depends on the context. And in the context of normal conversation, you understand which one we're talking about. And God uses a word through the prophet. He says, the Alma, and you may be wondering, well, which one? What does it mean? She's going to conceive and bear a son. And you're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the sign that God is with you. It's a sign so that you know that God really is going to do what he said he's going to do. The second part of the sign is interesting. The prophet says, before this child is quote-unquote grown, before he really can sort things out for himself and know the difference between good and evil, the land of these two kings, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, they're going to be emptied out. That's the sign. There's going to be a, a child born, and before the child is grown, those two kings are going to disappear. You didn't want a sign, but I'm giving it to you, and that's the sign. This is amazing. The immediate fulfillment of Isaiah 7 was the birth of, are you ready for it? Isaiah's son. That's the immediate fulfillment. Some of you are ready to jump to Christmas. Hold on. We're not there yet. First, we've got to deal with Isaiah's son. Isaiah chapter 8, the very next chapter. There's just a promise about a a child going to be born to this young woman. And you turn the, the page or you look over the next chapter and it says, Isaiah's wife got pregnant. It's a young woman. She's going to have a baby. And they named him. Are you ready for this? It's the longest name in the Bible. Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. We had it on our top three when we named our son. It came down, I mean, it was close at the end. It's still available if some of you want to call dibs. Now's your chance. I was thinking this week, we've had all these babies born lately, and I thought, you know, we auction pies to raise money for the youth to go to camp. Maybe we should auction baby names, right? You don't want anyone at church to steal your baby name. So when we have babies that are going to be born, we'll start auctioning baby names, and you get to bid on the name you want so no one takes it. And maybe you'd want to bid on this, Maharshalal Hashbaz. That's the child that was born. Can I tell you just some interesting history when you piece together the dates of all of this? Isaiah gives this prophecy to Ahaz, and he says, a child's going to be born. They're going to call him Emmanuel. It's going to be this sign that God is with you. Before the child grows up, these two kings that you're so terrified about, they're going to be gone. So you turn the page. His wife gets pregnant. She has a baby. They come up with this name. You know what happened before that child turned 12 years old? 
the Assyrians marched on Israel and Syria and wiped them out. I mean, they just cleaned their clock. Decimated those two nations. It happened exactly like God said it was going to happen. Now look, those two nations came and they attacked Judah. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That happened. But within 10 years, those nations were gone. Ancient history. The Lord said, the woman, this young woman, this virgin, this Alma will conceive and bear a child. God is going to be with you. And before that child grows up, these kings are going to be gone. It played out exactly like God said it was going to happen. It was a sign. Look, it wasn't a sign that in the moment a lot of people paid attention to. It was just another baby shower. But it was a sign that when you look back on it and you put all the pieces together, you said, God did it. He kept his word. He did it exactly like he said he was going to do it. That brings us to the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7, which was the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ. You can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, or you can just look at it on the screen. I just like to read the story that is so familiar to most of us. Matthew 1 says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. Child is from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then we quote Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the ultimate fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about. It was a sign that God was going to be with his people. Not that he would save them from every difficulty, but that he would preserve a remnant through that difficulty. Right? Matthew goes out of his way to make it clear to us that Mary was no young woman only. She was a virgin. He gives us all of these different clues. He says before they came together, then Joseph was going to put her away, and the Holy Spirit was involved in this. And what Matthew is saying to us is this child that's born is both divine and human. Both. Not in a 50-50 way, but in an all-in, all-in way. He was fully God. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was born of a human woman. He was the God-man. He was a child born without the stain of Adam's sin so that he could save those who had been stained by Adam's sin. A Messiah, a promised one, a baby. Just like God gave a sign 
to Ahaz and to the people of Judah. There's going to be a baby born. It's a sign that God is with you, that he's not abandoned you, that he's for you. Here's a sign, the real sign, the true sign. You thought Isaiah's son was the fulfillment. Here's the ultimate fulfillment, a baby, a boy. It's going to be God with you, Emmanuel. And he's come to save you from your sins. Far greater deliverance than salvation from some army, salvation from Rome or salvation from the next empire that would come, but salvation from the ultimate enemy, yourself, your own sins. The ultimate fulfillment was the birth of Jesus Christ. It was a sign. And just like in Isaiah's day, it was a sign that in the moment, not a lot of people paid attention to. Not a lot of people came. No, some shepherds came. All right. Some people from a foreign country came. Not many people came. But it's a sign you can look back on and you can say, look, God did it just like he said he was going to do it. He kept his word. He's been faithful to do exactly what he said he was going to do. So what do we do with it 2,000 years later? How do we apply this prophecy to our lives? Number one, we have faith in the promises of God, especially during times of crisis. Faith in the promises of God, especially during times of crisis. I've been struck all week long as I've thought about this story. Just marveled at the fact that God wanted Ahaz to have faith. He did everything he could do to move Ahaz to faith. He gave him every opportunity to believe. It's almost like he dared him to believe or challenged him to believe. Yes, he let these two kings attack Jerusalem. They attacked. Yes, there were casualties. It was bad. You can read in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Chronicles, in one day of the fighting, 100,000 people of Judah died. It's bad. 2 Chronicles 28 says that a famous warrior from Ephraim in that battle killed the king's own son. The casualties were not just impersonal soldiers without a face or a name. They were his own family. But Judah was not conquered. It was a devastating battle, but they didn't lose in the end. They kept their sovereignty. They kept their city. They held their ground, and God preserved a remnant. That's what he said he was going to do. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to save a remnant in this fight. And you read the story and you may think, surely at the end of it, Ahaz put all the pieces together, right? Like God just lays it out exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to happen. He he shows him all these things. Surely he saw it all in hindsight and, and he got it, right? Wrong. You know as well as I do that crises have a way of sorting out the wheat from the chaff, showing who's real and who's not real. And after everything that happened to Ahaz, this is what the Old Testament tells us about him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. He didn't soften his heart, he hardened it. He didn't realize, God, you're the true God, the Lord, Yahweh, and I need to submit to you but he bowed up even more. I'll give you some examples of what he did. When these nations came and attacked and they killed 100,000 of his own people, his decision, you may say, well, surely he worshiped the Lord then, right? No, he then worshiped the gods of Syria. 
He hadn't worshipped them yet, but they were powerful enough to slaughter 100,000 of his own people. So he thought, well, I'm going to, you can't beat them, join them, right? I'm going to worship those gods. The Bible says that he went to the temple, to the house of the Lord, and he vandalized it. He ransacked the Lord's temple so that he could build other idols. And he left it in such shambles that when he was done, he locked the doors of the temple. Not only was he not going to worship the Lord, but no one else was going to do it either. He built pagan altars all throughout Jerusalem. And this crisis did not soften him, it hardened him. Look, one Bible commentator I, I read this week said it this way. When you face a crisis in your life, it's sort of like God taking the training wheels off. It's time for you to learn to ride. It's time for you to learn to trust God. You don't have to trust God when you have training wheels on. You don't have to trust God when everything's easy. But in a crisis, that's where you learn to trust Him. And God took the training wheels off for Ahaz, and it was a disastrous crash with no recovery. Look, you're going to face crises. And you're going to get into those crises, and you're going to say, God, I don't know if you're going to come through. And you're going to be tempted. You're going to be so tempted to say, God, I need a sign. I need you to do this, or I need you to do that. Well, that's not how you build faith in the end. Right? Our faith is not in what we see, it's in what's not seen. It's not in what we have now, but it's in what God has promised us. And God wants his people to be people of faith. In good times, in bad times, in easy times, and in times of crisis. So we should be people of faith. Secondly, we should celebrate the birth of Jesus as God coming to dwell among us. Our Christmas celebration should be focused on Jesus as God coming to be with us. If your mind ever begins to be bored with this idea, you got to stop and check your heart. Like, you got to just stop and repent. The Bible says that God created people in the beginning to enjoy his presence, to be with him. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't lacking anything. He had perfect relationship, perfect joy, perfect everything within himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He didn't need us to fill up anything he was missing or lacking, and yet he created us to enjoy his presence. Sin separates us from God's presence, and the rest of the Bible unfolds an even more amazing story. God enacts a rescue mission to save sinful people so that they can once again enjoy his presence. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. Why did the Holy Spirit create life in Mary's womb so that this sinless child could be born? The angel told Joseph, it's because he is going to save his people from their sins. The sins that separate you from God and ruin your fellowship with God. Jesus came to save you from those sins so that you could be brought back in relationship with the Father. He wasn't obligated to do it. He didn't have to do it. But just like he chose to create people to be with him, he chose to save people so that they could also enjoy his presence. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not just the birth of a baby. Not just a nice connect the dots from Isaiah to Matthew. But we celebrate the birth of God come to be with us. The birth of Emmanuel.